The NFX podcast is about seeing what others do not and getting at the true mechanisms behind people and companies that endure change in the world. Today, James Curry is joined by Lee Jin, former partner at A16Z and now founder and managing partner at Atelier, who focuses on investing in the passion economy, which makes it easier for people to monetize their individuality through unique creative work. They discuss how NFTs are changing the economics of the creator economy, what happens when everyone has to be a marketer, and how they look for ways to make platform participants into platform owners. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know by leaving a rating or review and by sharing with friends you think should listen. You can also discover more content like other episodes, transcripts, essays, and videos by following us on Twitter at NFX and visiting NFX.com. And now, on to the show. So um, let's get going here. You, my friend, have been talking about the passion economy since around 2019. Mm-hmm. And just to make sure that everybody understands where that came from, can you just go th- quickly through what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, when I talk about the passion economy with my investor hat on, I'm referring to technology platforms that make it easier for people to monetize individuality and to earn income through work that feels more fulfilling and meaningful and creative. And where that came from is that I would say I've been a very creative person for my whole life. I studied art very intensively as a child. I was like very online during my childhood, doing a lot of the things that are now jobs, but before were not considered to be good uses of time. Like I was building websites, spending time writing fan fiction, participating in online communities. All of these things are things that people can do and earn money from now, but that wasn't the case before. Same with my passion for art and painting. And so it's always been this really lifelong desire to find a way to unite those passions and hobbies that I had with a way to monetize. Like there always seemed to be this binary choice between like, do you pursue your passions or do you like opt for a practical career and decide to major in something that's actually useful? Right. Follow your art and your heart or go get a cube job at an insurance company. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It seemed like such a stark decision and it felt like with the internet touching everything and multiplying everything, it should be possible to solve that problem. Absolutely. Yes. I think the internet uniquely unlocks this opportunity for the next generation and all subsequent generations of people versus what had been available to us before in a very local IRL-based world. Got it. And what's the difference between the gig economy and the passion economy? Yeah. So I have a really cool chart that I included in my original blog post about the passion economy over at the A16Z website, but there's a few axes of differentiation. One is that the type of work is different. So in the gig economy, you're doing really rote, commoditized, kind of repetitive work where the platform is telling you exactly what to do. In the passion economy, workers are deciding for themselves the types of services and products that they want to offer. The way that you scale your earnings is also different. In the gig economy, you just have to do more gigs, do more work, put in more hours, take on an additional task versus in the passion economy, it's much more about either growing your audience or intensifying the relationship that you have with your audience and your customers, like that depth of fandom. So an example would be a Patreon where you put up one video, but you know, four months ago you had five people subscribing or being a patron to your stuff, but now a thousand people. And so you've scaled it up, but you still only had to make one video to earn more. So it's a sort of scaling factor. Exactly. And I think of like, there's these new 
types of products that creators can offer that allow you to scale yourself in completely new ways and allow you to price discriminate among your audience as well so that you don't need to just like scale your reach and reach more people. You can monetize your super fans to higher degree such that you don't need to become mega famous. Like what would be an example? An example is NFTs and how they enable creators to price discovery in a really powerful way. For instance, earlier last month, I sold my first ever NFT on a website called Foundation. It's an NFT marketplace. I didn't really know how much it would sell for. I set the reserve price for 1.5 ETH, which at the time was about, I think, maybe like $3,000 or something. I, I thought the reserve price was quite high. I was afraid that it wouldn't sell. And it ended up selling for 13.37 ETH, which was about $25,000 at the time, now about $50,000. But like that was just insane to me that there was someone out there who cared enough about me supporting me I'm supporting my work that they were willing to pay so much for this NFT. Mm -hmm. So I think I've jokingly called that the one true fan model mm. versus the Kevin Kelly a thousand true fans or this post that I wrote about a hundred true fans. But I think NFTs allow you to identify that one true super fan who is willing to pay like a really high amount and allow a creator to earn a lot off of, you know, not that many followers. Right. And so not only can you identify them, but really you're allowing them to identify themselves. Yes, exactly. And in this case where this person paid this, they were not paying that amount of money because they thought the artwork was going to give them some utility. They didn't anticipate they would sell it for more. They were doing it because they were interested in supporting the person who was selling it and the work that they were doing. Maybe this work, this animated GIF was part of it, but there's also a lot of other work that you do in publishing that he might've been wanted to support. Is that right? Yeah. I actually had a conversation with him afterwards where I just wanted to understand what was going on in his mind when he was participating in this bidding war. There was a bidding war between two bidders and ultimately his name is James Young. And so I was asking James, like, why did you pay so much for this? What is your goal? What do you hope to do with this? And he told me something really interesting, which was that he said that for him, yeah, buying it was a form of activism. It was a form of sending a message to the public, as well as to me, that crypto can help be a solution to the creator middle class problem. Mm. That crypto should be and can be used as a way to build up the creator middle class, which I have talked about as being kind of non-existent today. And so for him, it was really important for him to own this NFT because he wanted to communicate through his act of ownership. And so right now we're actually in the process of talking about like how to leverage this NFT to fund more artists. So it's been an ongoing conversation. And did he then pitch you a startup idea? I mean, was that part of why he wanted to get to you? It wasn't a startup idea. His idea was that we start a decentralized grant giving organization to fund emerging artists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. And so early on in this NFT boom, which you know has been in the works now for three years, but really just took off in the last five months. Mm -hmm. You know, these sorts of acts can have a little more impact than they will, you know, in a few years when this is more commonplace. But it's interesting that transactions in this passion economy are perceived as sorts of activism or social statements. Yeah, I think it's super fascinating. I think zooming out from just this one example, I think broadly speaking, I think the coverage of NFTs as just purchasing art 
and investing in art, I think that kind of misses the mark. It's definitely true of some of it, but I think it's really just scratching the surface of what people are trying to accomplish when they purchase. I think there's NFT sales that function as relationship building. Mm -hmm. In this case, like I formed a relationship with this buyer. We're still talking about how to fund emerging creators. We're thinking about setting up this like decentralized organization to do it. So there's that element. I think it's a way to capture the attention of a creator in a world in which the creator is constantly being bombarded by tons of messages constantly. Like this is a way to dial up the volume of your message in a way. My friend Patrick Rivera, he had this amazing tweet recently where he said that currently on the internet, all likes are fungible. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like counts as the same like, but I think NFTs are a form of a non-fungible like. Right. And is this some sort of an indication that perhaps we have a very immature attention economy where this person was willing to spend $25,000 to get your attention yeah. and that we are undervaluing attention dramatically and that over the next few years, maybe that is going to get priced in and fixed? Yeah, I think this is such an interesting topic of discussion, and I still need to really clarify my own thoughts around it. But I think when people typically talk about the attention economy, they're referring to creators amassing the attention of an audience. And then after they have the attention, they're able to monetize that attention in all sorts of different ways. I think what's really interesting about NFTs and some of the new creator economy products that are coming into existence is that they're reversing that relationship. And they're flipping the economic transaction between attention, the direction that the attention is flowing and the way that the money is flowing. And what I mean by that is the audience member is purchasing attention from someone that they admire in the case of an NFT sale, right. in the case of like a cameo a sale, a cameo purchase. I think of the fan of that celebrity as purchasing their attention for a brief moment in time as well. Mm -hmm. Same with like the tipping behavior that you see on OnlyFans, which drives a ton of their GMV. Like people are sending large tips to creators as a way to get their attention. And so, yeah, I think of it as not just monetizing the attention that you have, but potentially like paying for the attention of someone that you want to establish a relationship with. Right. And in the sense of Cameo, I might buy that shout out for my son or for my wife because I'm trying to get her attention. <laughs> I'm essentially buying her attention by getting that person to give her attention. It's like, yeah. just all this attention going around and it's going to get increasingly monetized because we can measure it in the digital realm. Right. And attention has become such a scarce thing to capture that people are willing to pay for it. Does that mean everyone has to become a marketer? I mean, because we have a person who was really good at getting attention through Twitter and he ended up being president. You can get to be president if you're really good at this. Is that the future world that the marketers are the winners? I think for better or worse, yes. Mm. And I think this relates to um, an amazing post that Packy McCormick just put out the other day called The Great Online Game, where he describes how we are all participants in this huge massive multiplayer online game, but not in the traditional sense of an online game. Rather, like this game spans the entire web. It spans the entire world. It bridges to the offline world. Like our performance in this online game of Twitter and social media and blogging, etc. It bleeds into the opportunities that we have for making income and for progressing in our careers and for networking and connecting with people. And I think we're now in a world where you do have to play this game. You don't have an option anymore. Like, I think the notion that you could have one job forever and 
it could be pretty secure as long as you just did a good job in that position. I feel like those days are over in America. Mm -hmm. So you do have to play the game. And part of the game is being a good marketer. And isn't that going to be exhausting for certain personality types? Yes. Yeah. I mean, certain personality types are going to be very disadvantaged in this new world because they might not like tweeting or they might not like getting that type of attention. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be this phenomenon is not going to be welcomed with open arms by everyone, but I think it's happening regardless of whether or not we like it. Yeah. There's a blog post I wrote, I think in 2007 or eight called The Economics of Creativity. And it details as different technologies sweep through different ages, different people's talents are rewarded more with money, like incredible amounts of money. Like my aunt Mm -hmm. who recorded music in the 50s and distributed it on vinyl records. You know, she made hundreds of millions of dollars doing that. Whereas my grandfather, who was a great cellist and his parents had made money, he didn't make any money in the 30s because radio made it so that live music just was much less compensated. Yeah. And then you get, you know, a person like Michael Birch who designed Bebo and sold it for $850 million. He was really good at interface design, a creative act he would have done for free. But in that moment, you know, he made hundreds of millions at that time because that was the skill and the talent that was being rewarded by the technology of that time. And what I think we're saying here is that perhaps writing or marketing or figuring out how to get more attention is the talent for the current age and going forward. And I think being good at memes is part of that. Being able to generate memes and memeify things and get them to take off. Like I think that is a really prized skill set in today's day and age. Who's the best you know at doing that? I feel like this is a skill that is really native to Gen Z and all of the creators that I see on TikTok. Mm. It's all very like second nature to them to remix others work and duet them and collaborate on videos together. And like that entire platform is like a huge generator on a daily basis of so many memes. They're constantly trying to make their videos viral and take off. So I feel like that generation in its entirety is very Mm -hmm. good at it. You consider yourself part of that generation? No. You're what now? Just turned 30? Yeah, I'm a card-carrying millennial. This is a no for founders (laughs) out there. (laughs) I get contacted by founders who are looking for Gen Z investors, and Mm. I have to break it to folks that I'm not a Gen Z investor. (laughs) Got it. You're a millennial investor. I'm a millennial. Well done. And, you know, since 2019, certainly, I mean, how do you think about it? Because you're a creator. Like, you've gone and raised, what? how big is the fund? 13 million. 13 million. You've raised 13 million from a lot of great LPs. You've made how many investments so far? Oh my gosh, a lot. Like almost 30. 30 investments. And out of this $13 million fund, how many more will you make? I will probably make about 15 to 20 more. Great. And you're investing anywhere from 100 to 400K? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And at the same time, you are publishing at the same time you are involved in, you know, getting articles in New York Times and New Yorker and other things. How do you think about your creative act as an investor? I think it's a really important part of my work. And I think it's a really important part of all investors work now, just given the world that we live in and everything that we've described just now. I think it's a huge part of being able to be a good investor and to see the right deals today is that creative activity. But more than that, I think I do it more than just, you know, to drive deal flow and stuff. Like I genuinely love it. Like right. this is what I grew up doing. And it's clear. Yes. It feels like second nature. And so even if it didn't really have as much use professionally, I think I would still do it. 
Right. Well, that's what's interesting about it. I mean, it resonates with me that this is the passion economy. And if you have a passion for startups, you have a passion for investing, you have a passion for the future of work and all the things that talk about, then you're going to be natural at it. I think people will be drawn to listen to folks who are really wearing their heart on their sleeve. Yeah, I agree. I think I feel you doing that, but also adding in you know, the intelligence to memify it or to put it in a way that people can understand the core message. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. It's very cool. I think also, I think everyone's a creator. I think everyone has a creative streak. Like when we're in kindergarten, everyone thinks of themselves as an artist. And mm -hmm. we kind of lose that over time and people stop thinking of themselves that way. And people start saying like, I can't draw. Like no one said that when they were five, everyone thought they could draw. I think mm -hmm. everyone has a creator inside of them. To your point that like having to be a good marketer is not, people don't all want that. I think there is a type of creativity that everyone enjoys. They just need to find it. Right. And some of it's going to get more attention. Some of it won't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the form that gets attention is going to be more monetizable in the world we live in going forward. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. So it's interesting. You made a comment that some people call you looking for Gen Z investors. Why do you think they're looking for Gen Z investors? I thought you were going to ask, why do they think I'm Gen Z? Which is probably because I behave in a really young way. But to your actual question, why do I think they're looking for Gen Z investors? Honestly, I'm not entirely sure. And I would love to learn more about their rationale because I think it's a bad move to select your investors based on their age and to artificially constrain yourself in that way. Because it's, I don't know what the boundary is between Gen Z and millennial, like maybe 25 or something. It's not like something magically happens overnight where if you're if you're born after a certain day, you're just like not qualified to invest or add value to this company. So I think it's like too rough of a constraint to impose on the way that people look for investors. I think what they're trying to use age as a proxy for is being plugged in to youth trends and youth culture, which I guess it correlates with your age, but it doesn't necessarily mean that someone who's Gen Z is necessarily an expert, or if someone's not a Gen Z, they're necessarily clueless. So I would encourage founders to be more open-minded about the age of their investors, because I remember the days when all of this like online culture stuff and like blogging and YouTubers and all of that, it used to be so hyper associated with millennials. And somehow like <laughs> millennials are now over the hill and the torch has been passed on to Gen Z <laughs> and only Gen Z get to be online people. Only they get it. Yeah. I yeah. don't know how this happened, but I don't think it's actually accurate. Like millennials also grew up very online. A lot of my friends growing up were people that I'd never met in person. They were people I met on right. online forums and AIM. So yeah, I don't think right. one's age necessarily dictates how savvy they are. It does sound like maybe what they were saying was, I want someone who gets it. Yeah. You know, if you're out there pitching these investors and they just don't get it, if you're pitching a biotech company, you want biotech investors who understand biotech because otherwise they're just not going to mm -hmm. get it. I can relate to the feeling that you're just looking for someone who's going to get it. <laughs> and that can take many forms. Maybe it's age or maybe it's that they're really into social media or that they like biotech or whatever. But we built that tool, you know, of signal.nfx.com to let people find like who, who's going to get this yeah. idea. That's why I get that. I get that. But. I think it's also the case that, you know, when you get a lot of attention, people are going to call you up just because your name is well known mm -hmm. too. And they're hoping to find something that resonates with you. You're listening to the NFX podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, feel free to rate and review our channel and share this conversation with someone you think would benefit from these insights. Follow us on social at NFX and visit NFX.com for more content. And now back to the show. So 
What are some of the passion economy companies that you think are most emblematic of what's happening with this ability for the internet to let us make scalable revenue generation from things we really care deeply about? Hmm. Then after that, I wanted to just ask you, what do you think are the keys to getting these types of businesses going? And I say that because I have a suspicion that it's something about attention. It's something about network effects. It's something about viral effects that is going to be the key to differentiating one. Because look, we probably see, I don't know, four companies a week that are figuring out some new form of you know, passion economy platform. We're going to get people paid. We're going to get people noticed. We're going to, and it's very hard to distinguish between them because so many people have a passion about being passionate. And so it's like maybe 10 years ago when people were making these loyalty programs for restaurants and bars, right? Like everybody in New York had one of these startups because they thought, wouldn't this be a great life if I could, you know, build a platform, a marketplace for restaurants and bars. And right now we're seeing the same thing with the passion economy that so many of these platforms are coming in. So I'm trying to dig in for our listeners, for the startup founders. What are those key things that make for great companies in this area? Yeah, great question. So I'll start with the examples of companies that I think are really emblematic of this shift towards the fashion economy. I'll name two companies. This is just like, you know, tiny, small sample size. There's many others doing very cool stuff, but one of them is Mirror, mirror mirror.xyz. They're a blogging platform that's built on crypto that enables writers to monetize in all sorts of new, interesting crypto based ways. So one of those is potentially minting your essay as an NFT and selling that through an auction. Another thing that's happening on the platform is that writers are crowdfunding for a piece that they're working on in advance of when it actually gets published. So this crowdfunding mechanism, it's been used to fund novels, it's been used to fund like really ambitious essays that require a bunch of time and research. Because I think zooming out a little bit from Mirror, there's a ton of people who love to write, there's a ton of people who have interest pockets of knowledge and expertise that can be shared with the world. And to date on the internet, the way to monetize if you are a great writer is either through putting ads on your blog, or I think Substack did a lot to pioneer the subscription model of newsletters. But I think those two models leave a lot of writers still without a great business model. And those writers that are left without a great business model are perhaps publishing at a lower frequency, a lower cadence. They might publish like an amazing in-depth piece like once a year or twice a year. They might be investing a ton of time into an investigative piece that requires months of research or relationship building. Potentially that never even ends up turning into a finished piece. Substack is really subject to the same power law challenges at a place like YouTube and Twitter, where just a few make a ton and almost everybody else makes nothing. Yes, that's right. And I think that's a symptom of how discovery works on the internet, which is that it's driven by these algorithmic discovery platforms, the social platforms, and those discovery platforms kind of determine what readers are able to find in terms of writers. So I I don't think that's necessarily a challenge with the business model itself, but really with how attention is directed and allocated. But I think Mirror is really interesting because it's opening up this entirely new type of business model and creating business model innovation around writing online. The second company I was going to mention is called Maven. They're a platform to create cohort-based courses online. So if you're an expert in a certain topic, before you could monetize that through maybe consulting or getting a job in that industry or writing a book. But it was really hard for you to teach a course to many people, especially if that 
expertise area is kind of esoteric or niche. And so Maven is giving these experts all of the tools and support to package that into an online cohort-based course. And the idea is that a cohort-based course can be monetized at a higher price point. It can be much more engaging for the end students as well. They would have a much better experience going through a cohorted experience than just consuming like a recorded video. Mm. Um, So it's a better experience all around. And I offered a course on that platform earlier this year, teaching about the creator economy too, had a great time. And I think the commonality of these two companies, as well as getting to your second question of for founders, like what are kind of the commonalities of companies that find success in the passion economy? What I'm really interested in is the companies that are inviting like new participants into types of creative work that had been previously inaccessible to people. So they're enfranchising like a new segment of the population to do some type of work that hadn't really been easy or available to them before. Mm-hmm. In the Mirror case, that was like writers who aren't publishing frequently. In the Maven case, that's experts who didn't really have a way to share that expertise and monetize it with the world. But like for these companies and for many others, they're creating the entire toolbox that a person would need to convert like their skills or their interests or their passions into a product or a service that can be easily offered and create a great consumer experience at the end of the day. So you're taking people from zero to one, from I'm not making any money to I'm making some money. Yes. And it's interesting because you know a lot of people make businesses to compete with tools that where people are already making money. I know in marketplaces, we often see people design marketplaces to try to intermediate or digitize transactions that are already happening. Mm-hmm. And the big mental breakthrough is to say, can we create something that creates transactions that aren't happening at all? Because now you have incredibly loyal people to your platform because you've taken them from nothing to something. Exactly. And I think this is what Clay Christensen would call new market disruption. Like you're taking people who previously had not been productive in this way before and enabling them to participate in this new type of work that hadn't been available. So it's creating a new market where previously the market had been much smaller or didn't used to exist. And for me personally, I think that's just a lot more exciting as an investor and as a person in this world than just like intermediating a relationship that had already existed. And I think it's also emblematic of the huge shift that's happening in work in this country. Like I think we're moving from this world in which like people just had a job at a company forever to a world in which more people are self-employed and pursuing work with greater degrees of autonomy and self-direction. And if that's the case, then what you really want to do is enable these new participants to be able to work in new ways, not just intermediating an existing transaction. Yeah. And I think we started to see that, you know, sort of in the 2000s with World of Warcraft, where people were getting paid to kill pig and mine gold and then sell it to people. It was a new job that they'd never been in before. And then we got to see it more as I'm thinking about it with Uber and Airbnb, mm-hmm. where you have these assets that you own yes, and you've basically digitized them by turning them into your profile on Uber or the profile of your home on Airbnb.com. You've digitized them and now people can pay you for them in ways they couldn't do before because right. they can one, discover you and two, pay you and compare them and all that. And now we've moved on to where we're creating new digital things like you know these NFTs where there's actually new assets, mm-hmm. these, these new digital assets that can then be monetized that you can then create or something that you write infrequently, but wonderfully. And now you can monetize that. It's interesting to see that evolution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that way. And so what else should these passion economy type products, businesses be doing? Yeah, I would say another key 
element that I really look for is founder market fit. And I know you had this amazing blog post on that topic, which I refer to often, but I think in the passion economy, the end users, the the creators or solopreneurs or whatever you want to call them, the users of these platforms, they're sitting somewhere between like a consumer and an enterprise. They're like a micro SMB. And I think in the early days, the way that you acquire them is like handholding them, identifying them, talking to the one-on-one cultivating their trust, getting them to try this completely new platform. And so it's really important for the founder to have great founder market fit, to have like really deep customer empathy, to be like basically one of them such that they're able to earn the trust of those initial users and to get things going and to get traction on the platform. I get nervous when, you know, someone is building for a new type of work, but just like does not have relationships with the types of people who would be using the platform or connectivity to those communities. Because I think those initial users, whether they're writers or experts or teachers or whatever, like they're making their decision to use this platform as a huge expression of trust in the founder. Yeah, it's interesting. Who it's coming from does matter a lot now that that's become more transparent because of the internet, right? Yes, exactly. I think people actually care a lot about this. They don't just think of, you know, the platform as like a company that is off in the distance. Does it have the functionality I need? Is it fast enough? That's not it. That's part of it. Yeah. They care about who they're supporting by using the platform, Mm. like who the founders are. Who am I associating my own brand with? Yes, exactly. Who am I building wealth for? Yeah. That's a little tough though, because if you're a founder and you're not of the right age or the right gender or the right, you know, group, you might not be suited to win the hearts of the people you hope to win the hearts of. And that would be a hard thing to swallow. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think that's no different than, you know, like there's many other sectors where it's also hard for the wrong type of founder to start a business in that sector. Like it's hard to do enterprise sales if you don't have those relationships, et cetera. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting. So finding that really strong product founder fit and getting that right from the beginning. We hear that story about Patreon with Jack, right? Where he was the independent musician and he was one of the first to do one of these creator passion economy type platforms. Would you call Patreon one of the earlier ones? Yeah, I would. I think they really paved the way for the passion economy. And I think they've had huge cultural influence in a way that like most people don't even think of or don't remember, which is that I think they gave permission to the entire world to ask for money directly and broke through the sense that everything should be free and should just be monetized through ads. Yeah. And boy, I mean, since the 90s, we had had so many attempts at micropayments and those had never worked before. And this worked because it didn't say, pay me for this content or pay me for this thing. It said, pay this human being. Yes. Support me if you care about my work. Yeah. And that made it so personal. That's such a positive direction for the internet to let us move, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I think it's amazing to see there's Patreon pages out there that list various donation levels or patronage levels. And some of them are like hundreds of dollars per month or thousands of dollars a month. And I think that's only possible when you move away from, you know, pay me for this piece of content to pay me as a person, like support me as a human being. Mm, I agree. So most people would think that the real definition of happiness would be to do something you love and the money will follow. This is an old phrase from I don't know where. Mm -hmm. And some people say, do that. And most other people say, that's crap. That never happens. But we're starting to see that 
be potentially possible? Because like I got to say, in the last three years, two years, the proliferation of ways to make money has never been greater. Right. There was really no new ways of making money until you know the late 2000s, and now just got the spike in these NFTs and the fungible tokens, the unfungible tokens, color tokens, and so many layers of new money emerging and new forms of payment and whatnot. And so now it's going to start to be potentially possible to do what you love, and the money will follow. Do you think that could be a new social contract that our society can have with its people? I hope that that's the case, although I acknowledge that perhaps it's a little too overly optimistic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's not as simple as that, as everyone can just be happy all the time and make money. I think you have to have true passion. And do you have to have talent? Yeah, you have to have talent. You have to offer something different to the end consumer. Like Mm -hmm. I think in the passion economy, every individual creator is trying to offer a product and trying to find product market fit for it, where the market Mm -hmm. is their target customer base and they themselves are the product. Just like in the startup world, I don't think every company, I don't think every creator gets there. There's going to be folks that try to do this, but aren't able to make ends meet and aren't going to be able- Or find their niche. They won't be able to find their niche or they won't have the charisma. And some people are born with it and some people have less that they're born with and can only go so far in their development. Yeah. There's going to be some heartbreak around this because if I put out a piece of work and you don't like the work, that's fine. But if I put myself out there and you don't like me, that feels different. Yes, exactly. It's like when you're a founder and you get rejected for fundraising and it feels really personal because that company is an extension of yourself. I think creators go through that on a daily basis too. Yeah. Because it's about their individuality. It's about the unique thing that's going Mm -hmm. on with them. They're putting themselves into their content, their course, their newsletter, whatever it might be. Yeah. And this thing gets back to this bugaboo that the internet gives us, which are these power laws. Yeah. Which is that some people are very charismatic and other people just aren't. Some people are really fast and smart and interesting to listen to, and some people aren't. The systems we've had to date has not allowed for there to be a middle class, really. Mm-hmm. You did this great article for the HBR listing 10 ways we might think about you know, designing systems so that you can have a thicker middle of the power law. Right. Where there is some middle class, it might be you know percentile 90 to 98, because the top 2% will do fine. But whether it could be the top 30% making a, an okay living, it's not clear. But I thought you did a great job of thinking through what could we do from a design perspective to help make that happen. But the power law is so pernicious, right? Yeah. And the internet just makes it more pernicious. The example I keep using is, you know, 30 years ago, you would want to sell your home in your town and there were 30 agents and you really had no information. So you just went to the one that was at the PTA that you were at last week. <laughs> and that person would get their fair share of listings and make their fair share of money and they would put food on the table. Now you can go online and of the 30 agents in your town, you can easily see who the best agent is. And don't you want to use the best agent? Right. And so the power law gets steeper in this case because of the transparency that the internet gives us. Yeah. And that is affecting people everywhere as they struggle to realize where they are in the power law of life, it feels to me. I agree. That there's frustration, there's anger, there's upset. I mean, it might be a lot of what we're seeing politically in the United States is just people realizing where they really are and not having the illusion anymore that they're doing better than they really are. Yes, I agree. And it's painful. Yeah. And it relates to that piece about the great online game because we are now 
all having to compete with each other in this online arena. And it's no longer the case that you just have to be the local best at something or like even locally just decent in order to make a living. You now have to be like one of the best people in the world at a certain niche in order to be successful. Because to your point, like now as consumers, we can go online and choose the best and do our research and like find the best possible provider for anything. And that means everyone who's not the best ends up losing out. And yeah, that piece that I wrote for HBR had a bunch of different proposals for how we could help to mitigate this. But yeah, I'm not entirely sure if it's like fully like think the cat's out of the bag now and we just aren't going to go back to this world in which, you know, we had local monopolies on different types of services and everyone could make like a decent middle class income just by being okay at something. Like I think that era is over for better or worse and there's going to be beneficiaries of it and there's going to be people who lose out because of this. And I'm not sure what that means for society and what we should do collectively as a society. Like I think there's been a lot of discussion, which like we should continue to have about universal basic income and mm-hmm. like how we can support the folks that maybe just don't have the skill set to be able to succeed. Or too depressed. Yeah. Or too anxious. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Or the skills that they once had that were useful just are no longer the case mm-hmm. anymore. I think we should consider those kinds of society-wide policies. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think we also need to differentiate between doing well and feeling like you're doing well. Because people might be earning enough to have an okay standard of living, but if they're constantly bombarded with this feeling of inadequacy that the overall internet throws at them, right. then despite doing okay or doing better than they were than their parents did, they won't feel that way. And that will yeah. cause social unrest and that will cause misery. Why do we want people to have money? Because it helps them be happier. And if they're just not going to be happy no matter what, that itself, yeah. I think, is a challenge. And sort of designing systems to help people feel smart, to feel successful, to feel connected, to feel loved or appreciated or to get some attention, to feel like they have somebody listening to them. I remember this old story of uh, Daily Strength. It was a website for healthcare years ago, raised about 4 million bucks and then died. And it died because it was like a Craigslist for people to talk about their different health concerns. And the depression and anxiety groups came onto the platform and they weren't getting enough attention from each other. So they spread out into all the other groups and then everybody else fled the website. Mm. They were desperate for attention and that's what they wanted. And I get it. I totally get it. Yeah, I remember when I used to speak to some of the company CEOs and founders pre-COVID, I remember the sentiment in Silicon Valley, which you probably remember too, was that like, you know, even for like a really mediocre engineer, you had to pay so much just to be able to recruit talent because people were local and you only had this like small pool of talent. And now with remote work, Those are the people who, like, if you're a mediocre engineer, like, there's nothing to stop this founder from hiring someone across the world who's a much better engineer. It was like, okay, well, maybe they should just get better. And maybe they can take a course offered by an expert and just, like, be better. I don't think that's Mm -hmm. necessarily, like, realistic to expect that of everyone. Yeah, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the solution is. Yeah. Me neither. So so I got three more quick questions for you. I'll change this up to you a little bit. Let's talk about the media for a second, going back to the attention a bit. So, you know, you've got a sub stack, you've got this means Mm -hmm. of creation on your YouTube channel. What's going on behind the scenes there? How are you thinking about building your own personal brand? And then how would you advise other founders and other creators to think about their personal brands? 
Yeah. So I have a podcast called Means of Creation. We also export it as a YouTube. I have a newsletter that I write myself. Lee's newsletter is what it's called. Very original. Mm -hmm. And then I also work with the guys Every, which is a media company, a media bundle of different writers to also publish another weekly newsletter called Means of Creation. I think that's pretty much it. I'm obviously on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like the strategy and my advice to folks when it comes to brand building, I think it's really important to find creator creator content fit or creator format fit, which is kind of the creator version of product market fit. It's like what feels natural to you, what feels the most authentic and like comes the easiest to you. And I think it's really important to find that because otherwise you're not going to enjoy creating that thing and brand building in that way. For me, writing comes really naturally. I love writing. It feels as natural to me as breathing. And it probably even helps you think. Yeah. And it helps me think. It helps me like clarify my own thinking and I just really enjoy doing it. And so for me, it's just very natural to create a Substack and to publish that way. But if you had to ask me to brand build on TikTok, I would absolutely suck at that and not be (laughs) able to get anywhere and to not be able to build a brand Mm -hmm, at all. mm -hmm. Whereas that comes very naturally for other people. So I think just identifying what you enjoy creating is the first important thing. And then if you enjoy creating in that format or that type of content, like you're naturally going to want to do it and do it as a hobby, and then you're going to excel at it. That's great. And Web 3.0, are we there? And then how would you define it if we are? Yeah, I think we're getting there. I'm really excited about like Web 3 and what comes after all of our current centralized platforms and companies. Yeah. So I'm doing a lot of investing in the space. I'm exploring kind of the intersection of web two and web three companies that are trying to build bridges between the two. And are we there yet? I think perhaps like the state of the world that we get to is never going to be like fully one or the other, but there's going Mm -hmm. to be probably a mix of services that make sense as web two companies and then other companies that make more sense like as completely decentralized services. Mm-hmm. And that's really the definition that we're using to apply to Web 3.0 here is, is this decentralization. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Decentralized applications and services that run on the blockchain. And what do you think people are not seeing clearly about that? I mean, you know, everyone is using words like crypto and blockchain and decentralized and whatnot. You know, are people seeing it clearly or not yet? Hmm. I would say like, I think it means different things to different people and people emphasize like different elements of Web3. I think there's a little bit probably like too much emphasis on the trustless nature and also being like uncensorable. I think most people are actually very trusting and don't mind trusting a third party. And I think also most people probably aren't saying things that would need to be censored or removed from these centralized services. Like obviously there's notable exceptions to that, but for the most part, people aren't worried that Twitter is going to deplatform them or like, you know, suspend their account and not allow them to use the platform at all. I think what's more interesting about Web3 and the angle that I would love to explore more is insofar as it serves as a vector for allowing platform participants to become the owners of the platforms themselves. So as a way of distributing ownership to the broader ecosystem, rather than just a small group of investors and employees of the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the ownership economy sort of thing. We're going to have many more ways for people to participate in owning of the real estate or the companies or the platforms or the art that they're involved with. Yeah, exactly. I think that it just makes logical sense. It's kind of the next natural evolution. And I think as we move away from traditional employment and 
to this world in which people are utilizing a variety of different tools and services to create their own businesses, those individuals who are utilizing those platforms and services, they're just as meaningful to making that platform valuable as the employees who are like, you know, doing the engineering full time at that company. Like I think of, you know, Patreon equally being built by all of the creators who decided to use Patreon, especially in the early days, as it was the work of one single company and employees that work there. So I'm really interested in how we can involve all of the platform participants as co-owners and stakeholders in these platforms. Really interesting. And we're going to end up seeing the development of some standards and benchmarks around that too, because it's unclear where the line should be drawn, right? I mean, iOS is trying to take 30% of all the revenue on their platform. Is that the right number? Should it be 10? Should it be 20? Should it be variable? And uh, we still haven't come to the conclusion of that, but that's been pretty stable for about a decade. And it'll be interesting to see what percentage of these entities get shared with the contributors or if it's going to be super variable along with the power law. Yeah, totally. Well, Legion, this is so fun talking with you, pal. And um, thank you for spending an hour with us. We're uh, so pleased to have you. And congratulations on Atelier and all you've done so far. And I can't wait to see what's next. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. Thanks for having me. At NFX, we believe creating something of true significance starts with seeing what others do not. Send this episode to any friends that may need these insights and frameworks. And feel free to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to the NFX Podcast.